Boundaryless Kayak Fishing Podcast with your host, Mark Goodrow. All right, everybody, we got Joey on with us today coming off a big uh, top finish here at the Hobie BOS at Lake Seminole. How are we doing today, Joey? I'm doing good, man. Thanks for having me on. No, I absolutely appreciate you hopping on. Um, yeah, man, what what a heck of a finish that is for for was that the first Hobie BOS of the year? Yeah, that was the first Hobie BOS of the season. And it was my first ever Hobie BOS event. And uh yeah, what a whirlwind of emotions, man. <laughs> it, it was definitely a shocker. You know, I, I it was great to say the least, man. Everybody was buzzing about it and it was fun. Yeah, I was on the edge of my chair. I started seeing the, the postings on Facebook and everything and watching some live coverage and uh, watching that leaderboard. And man, I was like tense all day. <laughs> yeah, no, I was I was I was happy to be riding that uh, that wave, man. That was that was a blast. I was out killing it, having a blast. And, you know, I, I was just on the edge of my seat just as much as everybody else was. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um before we get into too much about the tournament, let's let's kind of start off. I mean, how long have you been kayaking fishing forever? Or, how you know, when did you start kayak fishing? And when did you start entering tournaments? Give us a little background there. Yeah, so uh, to be honest with you, I've only been kayak fishing, I would say, for about three years now. Um, I start. I grew up fishing in, in a boat with my parents up up fishing up in Northern Minnesota, Leech Lake area, Duluth area. Um, and, uh, yeah, so kayak fishing still kind of new to the scene. And, and, uh, to be honest with you, I got, I got into competitive kayak angling through the MNKFA, the Minnesota kayak fishing association. Um, you know, there was one day I was just sitting around thinking, Hey, I, yeah, I've always wanted to be in competitive fishing and, they were the group that did it in Minnesota and that's how I got started. Awesome. So did you purposely pick kayak fishing or what led you to kayak fishing versus, you know, boat fishing or shore fishing? Um, what kind of led you down that road? The cost of a boat. <laughs> I would say that's what got, what brought me to uh, kayak fishing because, um, you know, I, I, my whole life, my dream has always been to, to be a pro fisherman and, um, you know, obviously with the economy and everything, I just, you know, being able to afford a $60,000 bass boat to be able to compete with those guys was kind of out of my reach. So, you know, that's what really led me to kayak fishing and, and honestly, kayaks, you don't have to worry about maintaining a boat or an engine or any of the other things that we'd have to deal with, with being up here in Minnesota in the cold weather. <laughs> so makes it a little bit easier and, and, uh, and yeah, that's, that's how I got involved in kayak fishing. Absolutely. And, and have you been tournament fishing for like, is this really your first year going at or have you been doing tournament fishing for a few years? So I've been tournament fishing now, I would say for, this will be my third season. So I started out my first season fishing with the MNKFA and the local club level. Um, this will be my first season fishing more of what I would call the pro level events, you know, your national events like Hobie, um, BASS last year, I did dabble in BASS, um, because they didn't have an AOI that you needed to chase. 
Um, and uh, I really wanted to get myself consistent on the club level before I went into um, the pro or national scene. No, absolutely. And I give you props. I mean, going, uh, you know, in three years from just kind of fishing the local stuff to, to the big national tournaments, that's quite a change. And I, I've been following you a little bit for the past, you know, year or two. And it seems like you, you jumped in off the deep end. <laughs> yeah, I know. Thanks, man. I, I know I appreciate it. I, I've spent my whole life preparing for this, like, like I said earlier. And, and I'm just happy now that I can finally start living my dream. Awesome. Well, that's, that's, that's sweet. Um, so getting into this tournament specifically, give us a little breakdown of kind of tournament prep because you live up in Minnesota and this was in Lake Seminole. That's Georgia, right? Yeah, that's down on the Florida, Georgia border. Um, so as far as my tournament prep, um, I am a strong believer or one of the things that I've developed over my time as a competitive angler is, um, chasing patterns. And so pre-fishing for me was a first about figuring out what stage, um, the fish were going to be in, whether it was winter pre-spawn or spawn based on the time of the year. I think, you know, based on, um, time of the year, I figured they were pre-spawn next, um, for me was a lot of map study at home, you know, really diving into Navionics and, lake maps that I could find, Google Maps, Google Earth, you know, locating anything that would look like it could be a spawning area, um, and then potential wintering holes, and then, you know, transitioning from that to actual on-the-water time, you know, figuring out, okay, where are the fish now? Are they actively moving up to spawn? Are they staging, um, ready to go for the spawn, or are they still in the winter pattern? And, uh, you know, that's basically what I did pre-fishing, um, on the water time told me that they were staging for the spawn. I don't know if that was due okay. to the fact that there was a heavy cold front that came through the week before or whatnot, but, uh, I definitely found them staged ready to go. They weren't actively spawning yet. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, that's something that's critical. I think for a lot of new beginner kayak angler is, you know, all the homework, that you do at home before something like this um and, and i fish more of just the local tournaments too but man i spend you know days and weeks just break down you know that lake ahead of time and think you know just good fishy kind of spots as much as you can before you get on the water um how much time did you have actually on the water before the tournament oh i would say um yeah so on the water i drove down um, Monday, I got there late Tuesday. I was able to fish for a little bit, like probably like two or three hours on Tuesday. And then I had all day Wednesday through Friday to, to spend on the water. Um, you know, bite was really tough up until the last day of pre-fishing when I actually found the spot. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, I would say to kick back to what you said, you know, pre-fishing for me is all about a lot of homework and i would say for every hour on the water i spend at least three to four hours researching and trying to find spots yeah and, and you know having pretty much three full days to be able to pre-fish a body water is, is a really nice luxury to have for sure um it's amazing how much you can tell even just just paddling around what different areas look like compared to 
head satellite view. <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely a uh, something you have to spend on the water. You know, I when I'm fishing these national level events, I'm I'm going hard for them. So, you know, I'm trying to make sure that I I get as much time as I need to properly break down a body of water and at least figure out some sort of a pattern so I can get confident going into tourney days. Right. Now, what what type of lake is this? Is this like a river flooded or were there a lot of different sections with like any dams or anything? Yeah, so this is an impoundment, one of the southern reservoir type lakes. Um, so there's three river systems that feed in to make the primary lake. So there was the Chattahoochee, the Spring Creek River, and then the Flint River um, all dump into a basin that was dammed up to form Lake Seminole. And uh, yeah, each each three of those river sections fish differently. And the Flint River actually holds the the Florida shoal bass, which I was kind of bummed I didn't get a chance to catch any of those while I was down there. But but um, but yeah, no, I could definitely tell from free fishing all three of those rivers are completely different from the next. One of them's super muddy. One of them's really extremely clear, and the next one had a little bit more current flow to it. Yeah, have you ever fished? a lake like that because up in minnesota we don't really have anything like that i haven't so the the thing that i use um, when i'm traveling down south is i use my knowledge of the mississippi to help me fish these tournaments so one thing that you will probably see is i continue to fish these southern reservoir type lakes that have like creeks or feeder rivers to them is i'm always going to be finding a place that's got some sort of current some sort of a river channel that I can use to, to help me locate the fish just because that that's, that's what I've learned. And that's what I know best. Right. No, that, that's smart. Sticking to that. Yeah. I love fishing river systems because once you understand that knowledge and kind of where the fish like to hold, um, you can typically apply it to any section of the river. Um, exactly. So, and- yeah it makes it so much easier for me when I'm, when I'm prepping for one of these tournaments, because automatically I've eliminated half the lake, you know? So that's, that's half the lake that I have to, that I don't have to worry about anymore, taking a look at. And you know, from fishing rivers as well, that river systems tend to stack fish in certain areas and certain times of the year. And what I found from fishing these Southern reservoir style lakes is it's the same concept. You just might not have as much current flow. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's a different ball game down there, too, because, you know, with the whole flooding and area aspect, um, the type of cover and everything is it varies so much. I mean, you have old trees that are there. Sometimes you have roads and bridges that are uh, down, you know, 10, 20 feet under the water um, from kind of flooding this whole area and then you have a lot of water level fluctuation too um so there's a lot of variables in a lot of those types of lakes down there well definitely and i think the the fun part for me to be honest with you is uh the fact that they have the florida strain largemouth so up here in minnesota we're so used to that northern strain largemouth and you know one of the things that i've really done over the last year preparing to go into these national events is trying to learn about how the florida strain bass is different from the northern strain bass and i was actually able to apply that knowledge to this tournament knowing that 
you know, northern strain bass will typically follow weed edges and grass edges to spawning flats, and they're more structure-oriented where the Florida strain bass will follow ditches and old creek channels um, and ledges more than grass edges. So, you know, that's that's one of the things that uh, I find pretty exciting about what I'm doing and fishing these these lakes down south. Wow. All right. Well, that's that's probably something that I wouldn't have gone to that deep of a level to, to even really think about the difference between the strains. Um, so that's pretty impressive to to be digging into almost that science side of it um, and using that to your advantage. That's yeah, a good way to go. <laughs> I think I think it just helps me put together the pattern, right? So if you once you figure out the type of fish that you're you're targeting. The more you know about them, the better. And, you know, that has definitely paid off for me in all through at least two of the events that I fished down south. So. Right. No, that's awesome. Um, so, you know, once you started piecing this together, you know, you're thinking pre-spawn kind of back. Uh, is it kind of back creeks and river channel areas, you know? So what lures are you thinking about when you kind of start narrowing that down? So what I realized, this is what I learned fishing on the water. I went prepared to either throw a lipless or some sort of like a chatterbait or a spinnerbait, something moving to get that reaction bite to at least tell me where the fish were. So then I could set up shop and, and try to pick them off one by one using finesse tactics if I needed to. Um, so once I got on the water and I finally found the fish when they were schooling, where they were schooling, um, I realized that the spot had a lot of grass. And so that eliminated the, the lipless and I went straight to the chatterbait because the chatterbait, you still get that vibration. Um, you still get that movement. You can still get that erratic movement and you could easily rip it through the grass. Um, the water where I was fishing was kind of muddy. It wasn't you know, chocolate milk muddy. It was kind of that dingy, um, tannic water, Florida water. And, uh, uh, felt that the, that the chatterbait, um, jackhammer was the best way to go. Ah, the jackhammer, man. I've been hearing a lot of people loving the jackhammer. Lately. Oh yeah. <laughs> what makes that lure any different than a regular chatterbait? Is there anything that sticks out to you there? Vibration, in my opinion, it's the vibration. Um, you know, I, I could really easily rip that thing through the grass and I, I just personally feel that the, the vibration is perfect. It's not too high pitched. It's not too low pitched and the action on that bait, the, the bait starts, starts swimming immediately when, when you're jigging it. So I just think all, all around it, it's a perfect bait. It's well worth its weight in gold. Yeah, I'm gonna have to pick up a few of those this year. You know, they're they're like fifteen dollars for a chatter bait, yes. but um, compared to you know, you can get the original Z Man, I think, for like five or six bucks. Um, but I've seen a lot of guys pulling some big bags out with that jackhammer, so yes. I'll probably have to give it a shot. Yeah, any, any color choice with a kind of yep. So clarity. So down in. Uh down in those areas again doing research onto the type of forage and doing your at-home research I, I realized that there's a lot of four to five inch shad and bluegill in that river system so down south you automatically switch from bluegill to shad everything has to be shad and that automatically goes to white so white was my starting color 
Um, started with that, was only able to get one or two bites when I could see the mega school during pre-fishing. And I, and you know, so once I found the fish, tried the white color out, realized I was getting bites, but I don't, I didn't feel confident that I was getting the bites that I needed to win the tournament. So I decided to put a white and chartreuse on because of the color of the water, just to give it that little kick, that little added flavor. And, uh, smothered it in jb's fish sauce um the black garlic and that was the ticket you know pre-fishing i did actually get them fired up one time to uh where i was catching them every cast and that's how i was able to to figure out that the spot that i had found was holding you know i don't think i i caught a fish under 18 inches at that spot wow so uh so i think once i found that and i found that color pattern i immediately cut it off and uh switched to a different color so nobody else knew what i was using and started to paddle around okay and you you said mega school and you found your mega school bass what what led you to that was that just fishing are you using electronics there and narrowing down how how did you find that school specifically so a little bit of both so my thought process throughout pre-fishing we started out trying to fish really shallow to try to see if the fish had moved up her beds or if they were getting ready for the spawn or if the bucks or females had moved up And uh, we realized, you know, after about the second day and flipping between four different spots that it just wasn't happening up shallow. So that's when I made the decision to trace back the fish in the spawning process. You know, I really sat down the night before. um, So that would have been Thursday night, really sat down and looked at the lake map and and figured out that, you know, hey, the fish aren't shallow. You know, they're not going to be in their wintering pattern anymore because the water temps were telling me it was 55, 56 degrees. So then I basically found an old creek channel that I had figured that the bass would be using to migrate to the spawning flats. And I used a percentage triangle to track them down. Um, started at the spawning flat and just worked my way slowly through that creek channel back towards the wintering hole. And then um, eventually ran into them on the on the electronics you know, it would, it would be barren and all of a sudden you start to see one or two. And then I got to this outside bend in this Creek channel and you'd look on the sonar and you, you would definitively see 20 to 30 bass wow. on the side scan. Okay. And, and that's when I stopped and made a couple casts to make sure that they were bass. And then that's when I figured out what I was, what I stumbled upon and, and, uh, you know, dropped a waypoint and got ready for Saturday. Okay. So Getting into the tournament a little bit, you know, you found this mega school, um, you know, on Friday pre-fishing and you're going in a tournament day one. Why don't you break down kind of how that day went? Yeah. So going into day one, um, I immediately made a beeline for that spot. Um, you know, I figured that if the fish were there, uh, based on what I saw pre-fishing, I was able to get the school fired up that I'd probably get them going right away. Um, on Saturday, there was actually a high school bass fishing league having a tournament on a lake as well. So there were going to be 150 bass boats on top of the 170 some competitors that we had fishing the Hobie. So I knew I wanted to get to my spot right away. Um, so I immediately made a beeline for that spot. Um, it took me all of the entire 30 minutes of pedal time to get there and, uh, lines in was seven. I made three casts and got my first fish. And then 
proceeded to catch them cast after cast, um, old 19, 20 inchers. Um, and uh, after my six fish, I realized that I already had 98 inches on the board and there was not a bass boat or another kayak in, in sight. So I immediately made a decision to leave the fish and head out to try to do punching or something to try to see if I could find a kicker fish and get away from my spot. So nobody knew where I was fishing at. Jeez, talk about a tournament daydream right there. <laughs> Being able to pull up on yes, the spot it... and nail yeah, 98 inch bag and five fish tournament, you know? Um, yeah. Those are almost 20 inches for, for all of them. That's a good start. It, it was. Yeah, it was. I think I had one 18 incher that I had caught or one 16 incher that I had caught right away that I, that I knew I'd, I'd have no problems culling it. So I made an extra cast and caught a 19 incher to call that fish. <laughs> and, and, um, you know, then, uh, it, it, it was magic. I can't even explain what I was feeling. I, it felt really awkward for me because I've never had been in a tournament situation to where I felt like I'd won a tournament within 10 casts. Right. And, and, uh, so I really, to be honest with you, didn't know what to do. Um, I knew that I had to back off my fish to let them set up for day two. And I actually had found, you know, since I'd found a pattern, I knew I could probably work that Creek bed a little bit more to find other spots, but you know, with, without there being another bass boat and another kayak around, I felt that my best card to play was to just leave the area. So that way nobody had an idea of where I was fishing and nobody saw me catching them to try to encroach on the spot. Um, and then I spent the rest of the day just watching a leaderboard to see if I needed to go back. Yeah. <laughs> well, not. I saw how active you were on social media throughout the whole thing. And, you know, me typically in a tournament setting, I'm, you know, it's balls to the wall. I'm going as hard as I can the entire time. <laughs> and here I see you Facebook living and, you know, just having a good old time <laughs> posting and texting people and yeah. being on Facebook. And I'm like, what is he thinking? But, I guess at the same time, if yeah. you're, if after an hour, uh, you have a comfortable, almost hundred inch bag, um, then, Hey, you might as well have a little fun with it. And, and I think it was a smart yeah. idea because, um, you know, I've seen a lot of pros too, just watching the, you know, NLF and BASS about guys, you know, finding those spots, catching their fish. And then, you know, uh, basically trying to hide the spot. Right. I mean, you start getting a little tension around there. Um, it's not too hard for someone else or a few other people to start coming up your creek channel and, and hitting them too. So I think that's a smart move there. Yeah, it was tough for me to make that move because I obviously wanted to bash them. But, you know, going into pre-fishing, like I told you, the pre-fishing was tough. And everybody I talked to was saying the same thing, that, that they weren't catching fish. And I was honestly, in my mind, thinking that it was going to take a limit to just win the tournament, let alone having a hundred inches. So I thought there was no way anybody was going to beat me with 98 inches. And, um, you know, we had caught a couple big fish punching around. So that's really what I tried to do the rest of the day was try to just, you know, flip and punch and make people think, first of all, that that's what I was doing to catch my fish. Right. But then secondly, try to, you know, maybe run into a big kicker, um, and, uh, yeah, typically during tournament settings, I usually am pretty active following social media anyways. Um, I just happen to be in a position to where I could actually, you know, engage and 
and watch. For me, that's that's part of having fun during a tournament. Right. Okay. So you end up the day, uh, day one, about 98 inches, and you're in second place, right? Yep. Okay. Someone else had had a good day, too. Um, so, you know, yeah, you, fin- you finished day one there in second place with a 98-inch bag. And so let's go into day two and kind of the, the drama that unfolded there. <laughs> yeah, so after the bomb got dropped on me Friday night, so Friday the end of, or the end of the, the day one on Saturday was was pretty interesting for me because first of all I busted my drive on the way back in on a stump, so I broke the back fin off my drive. I saw and, that. Uh, and then you're, as you're talking about your Hobie Mirage drive, so your your, your pedal propulsion, yeah, my Hobie Mirage drive, your your main way to travel i saw the rod basically came sticking straight through uh the fin there yeah what'd you do to fix that yeah so i actually was worried about getting a disqualification or something for not being able to get off the water in time so i immediately started calling aj the uh, tournament director and, and asking what to do and he actually had told me that uh you can limp back with one fin so I just ended up fully taking off the back fin and limping back with one fin. But uh, so that was the first thing that happened at the end of day one. And then the bomb got dropped to me. As soon as I got back to the boat ramp, I find out that Brian Howell had actually put up 101 inches, which wasn't on the leaderboard at all during the day because he didn't have cell service. So um, going into day two, I, I actually felt really confident, which is the most confident I've ever felt in a tournament situation. Um, I really, my gut was telling me that because I let those fish sit basically all day long and nobody else fished that spot that I was going to be able to go back and lay the hammer to them on day two on Sunday. And that's exactly what I did. So going into day two, I made a beeline back to that spot. Um, I was actually a little stressed because there were two of the other guys at the landing who realized who I was and followed me down to that spot. (laughs) But, uh, thankfully they, they gave me my space and let me do what I needed to do. Um, and it was really similar to day one where it only took me probably three or four casts to get started. And, and, you know, I had a flurry going for at least 45 minutes where I was catching 18 to 20 inches every cast, um, had put up, uh, another upper 90 inch bag within that first hour. And then, uh, there was a little bit of a wind that had picked up in my spot and that really kind of shut down the bite where I was fishing. And it could have also been because I had been beating them up for an hour, but um, then the camera boats arrived. And as soon as the camera boats arrived, they must've brought me a little bit of luck or something because that's when I caught two of my big cull fish. And that's when I finally was able to break that 200 inch mark. And I was so excited once I broke that 200 inch mark, I can't, even begin to explain it um it was i I felt so accomplished and in my mind you know there was no way i was going to get beat with 200 inches and so i spent the rest of the day just trying to comb through that spot because actually on day one i had broke off on a fish that was easily 23 24 inches and i was hoping to get that big kicker fish again to really seal the deal in the event that brian was catching fish And, uh, so then I did, you know, went on Facebook live again because my spot had dried up by about noon and, uh, I was, I would end up having to sit there for 15, 20 minutes at a time to wait for the spot to reset. And then I'd be able to catch one or two more. 
let it reset. But by that point I was trying to call 20 and a half inch fish and that was almost next to impossible for me. So, yeah. Um, again, I mean, one unbelievable day to and way to start it. I mean, yeah. th- those are kind of, you know, coming out of day one, being in second place, 98 inches and, and you know, only a few inches out of the lead. Um, you know, you're kind of thinking to yourself going to the second day, all right, I can't blow it. Like, hopefully my fit didn't move. Um, you know, you start feeling that stress a little bit because, you know, you got a lot to lose, right? So, you know, being able to go to that spot and put bag in the upper 90s and, and to be able to call within a few hours to push yourself um, well over the 100-inch mark for the day and, and over 200 inches total for the tournament, I mean, that's has to feel good (laughs) yeah it felt great i mean i i i can tell you that i was so stressed about losing another 24 incher that i would retie my lure almost every after every fish (laughs) because i was so stressed about it there was going to be no way i was going to lose a fish because of something i could have prevented yeah and i can tell you every bite that i had i landed that fish (laughs) (laughs) no i I mean that's the time to start getting serious and you definitely don't want to lose a fish um yes so you end up breaking the 200 inch mark my understanding you reached out to them and and you may officially be the first one to break the 200 inch mark in the whole bbs bos tournament so i actually reached out to aj because i had no clue in my mind that i was ever going to actually break 200 inches and then i realized i had 200 and at that point i had like 201 and a quarter and i remember texting aj and asking aj you know what the rec the two-day record was because i don't ever re remember seeing anybody ever have 200 inches in a tournament it's like unheard of so i just wanted to know for myself and i did receive confirmation that from aj that i was the first angler to ever break that 200 inch mark for hobie bos that is, that is something uh that is gonna be a cool thing to be able to you know tell your kids and grandkids someday i mean that's that's something that not everybody uh, can say in their lifetime or will even get close to being able to say in their lifetime. So congrats to you on that. That That's exciting right there. Thanks, man. I know I, I really appreciate it. And, you know, like I knew after I had 200 inches that Brian was going to need over a hundred inches to beat me. And I, I, I definitely thought for sure there was going to be no way, but, that guy, he, he got lucky, man. He, he found, he, he told me about what happened next and yeah, I props to him. Yeah. So, so that's where the drama unfolded throughout the day. So you start out there in second place. Um, and Brian there was in first, uh, what was his total after day one? Was it like one one Yeah, it was like a little over one one for day one. Um, so I knew, you know, with as confident as I was going into day two, I knew that, uh, you know, if my fish were there, I was going to definitely put up over a hundred inches. I didn't know exactly how much I was going to put up, but, um, but yeah, so once I had 201, I was able to get one more call fish, probably around like one o'clock, I believe it was like noon, one o'clock ish. And then I had 201 and a half. And I remember, um, sitting here thinking there's no way that he's going to get you know over 100 inches at this point to beat me 
And, uh, yeah, I rode the leaderboard all day. You know, I, same thing as day one. I, I stayed in my spot to this on day two, because obviously I didn't want to miss like that potential big kicker fish. And, um, you know, I, I kept watching the leaderboard, just hoping to see a glimpse on if he was catching anything and kept watching social media pages to see if he was posting anything about potentially getting him. And I didn't see anything. So I felt pretty confident, but you know, I, it's such a weird feeling to have 200 inches and not know if it's enough to do to take home the W. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a tough spot. Um, I can, it wasn't nearly on the same level as what you were at. Um, I was fishing the, the clear water Browns back. Gosh, is what, three years ago now. Um, and I ended up, going into that one and I did end up winning it um but what happened was you know they do different waves there so there's like a 7 a.m wave an 8 a.m wave and a 9 a.m wave and I was like on the second wave and I you know I, I finished up around three in the top spot but I had to sit there for an hour um as other people are uploading fish and, and finishing on that last wave. And man, I was just biting my nails, just sitting there, you know, not saying a word to anybody kind of just in the corner, um, just waiting for the hour to go by and just wondering, all right, is it going to stick? Is it not going to stick? And, and that's one of the most nerve wracking places. Um, but you know, at least where you were at, you, you knew you put in a real solid bag and there's only one guy that could theoretically catch you. Um, and just the, I didn't realize that he didn't have that reception. It wasn't uploading the fish. So when I was looking at your results, you know, I mean, smoking the rest of the field, I don't know what third place got, but I know you two um, beat them by a good margin there. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm looking at your score thinking, man, you got this in the bag. And then I watched one of the live recordings and they talked about um, Brian, hasn't uploaded his fish and how he's in a bad reception area. And I was like, Oh man, this is really getting intense. Um, and sure enough, you know, he, he gets in that cell reception and get those fish uploaded and he, and he beats you by just a little bit. I mean, (laughs) well, he beat me by four inch. He, he beat me by four inches. So he caught He caught the big kicker fish that I was hoping for. He caught, he caught the big fish that one of the big bass, um, that 23 and a half incher. And yeah, I was sitting there, I was sweating bullets, you know, like I mentioned to you, I, I can't even explain how it felt to have over 200 inches breaking a record and not knowing if that's enough to win the tournament. I knew he was slugging for the fences too. And, uh, you know, I, I can say, all I can really say is that I gave it my all, like I vacuumed cleaned that spot that I was fishing. You know, when I drove back through there at the end, there was not a fish on my side. Hand, <laughs> and I knew, that I had done the best that I could. And I spent that whole paddle back and that whole drive into awards, just trying to come turn to terms with myself that, you know, Hey, if he beat me, he would have had to have put up over a hundred inches and he deserves it. So, you know, I, I, that, and that's what happened, you know? So I made sure that when we got to awards, I came over and, and talked to him this, like all of social media was buzzing all day long. And it was, it was great to watch that. And I just wanted to make sure I've never met the guy before. So, you know, I waited around before wards till he got there and then him and I had a, 
had a fun little chat, got to know each other a little bit before going into awards. Hey, yeah, and, and that's a great attitude, and the absolutely should keep your chin up on that one. I mean, second place in your first Hopi BOS and, and putting up over 200 inches. I mean, you, you can't ask for too much more other than that first place spot. And you get a yeah, and you get a walk away with a forty eight hundred dollar check as your first uh, big tournament down there. So you got to be pretty happy about that. Yeah, I am. I'm I'm stoked. Like I said at the beginning, my my goal for this season is to honestly shoot for the AOI and shoot for Hobie Worlds is actually my big goal. So you know, I, this gets me a second place finish that I can use towards that. Um, you know, so hopefully as the season progresses, you know, I'm already 99 points towards getting to Hobie worlds. So, you know, that's, you know, Brian was a great guy when I talked to him, he, you know, wasn't trying to rub it in my face or, or anything. So, you know, I, I don't, I, I wouldn't take it any other way. Yeah, no, that's awesome. How, how did you enjoy the whole Hobie BOS experience kind of as, as a tournament in general? Um, yeah, anything specific about that tournament series that you like? I mean, I know you're traveling kind of nationally for that. Yeah, so the the thing that really drives me to fish the Hobie scene is, you know, first of all, Hobie Worlds. That is a dream of mine to be able to go represent USA in an event like that. Um, and honestly, I enjoy the challenge of the two-day tournaments because it's a totally different mindset than single-day tournaments. And... I feel that that fits my strong suits as an angler because, you know, you, you followed me for the last couple of years. I, I tend to be consistent, you know, top 10, top 15, you know, or so with, with single day events. And that's because I'm more of a pattern fisherman. And, you know, I feel that my abilities and understanding of patterns is what is going to help me excel in two day tournaments. And that's part of the reason why I've zeroed in on the Hobie events is because it gets me a chance to, to showcase my skills in understanding of patterns versus hoping for a good spot. Right. Right. No, that's a great point. Um, I was talking to my buddy the other day and I, I'm probably the opposite. I'm the guy that loves the single day tournament. Cause it's one of those things where anything can happen. And uh, yep. I don't have the time with a little daughter and, you know, full-time job here and everything to go out and really pre-fish much or, you know, get a lot of time on the water to prep right now in my life. Um, so I love those single day tournaments where, uh, you know, it, it can change a little bit. And even those guys that pre-fish, they still got to go out and find them that day. And, you know, I still have my shot at, uh, you know, hopefully finishing in top 10 or, or better. Yeah, those those single day tournaments definitely keep the adrenaline pumping all day long. <laughs> you know, oh, or yeah. over a two day tournament, you have to kind of manage your stress. You have to manage that adrenaline. But on that single day tournament, you're running and gunning as hard as you can. And yeah, they're, they, single day tournaments definitely have their place in every tournament angler's heart. Yeah, no, and, and you are yeah. worn out for a week after those. But uh, I love oh, yeah. the tournament scene. It's It's a good time for sure. It is, especially with kayak fishing now, because, you know, everybody like the reasons why I've got into kayak fishing is, you know, because of the cost of owning a boat, you know, all the extra legwork that entails in that. And, you know, honestly, trying to become anything in the big boat world is so much harder 
than it is just going out having fun with your buddies and fishing in a kayak and you know fishing in a kayak kayak tournaments everybody i don't think i've met one angler yet that hasn't been a great person to talk to you know everybody seems to be the kind of person you want to meet in a kayak tournament versus you know knowing some of the people who fish you know boat tournaments like big boat tournaments they tend to be a little bit more to themselves and a little bit more gung-ho and not as open no for sure um there's kind of a hierarchy it seems in the boat world but you know kayak fishermen it's you know it's a lot more everybody's kind of a little more down to earth and you know all of us don't have that spare sixty thousand dollars like you said um Exactly. And I mean, kayak sales too have gone through the roof because of COVID. So, you know, I I have a feeling that the kayak fishing industry is about to explode. Even it has been exploding. I think in the upcoming years, we're just going to see it exponentially grow to the point where we hopefully have elite series events where guys are competing for 10 to $20,000 every tournament. Yeah, no, I mean, this is, was that the biggest payout there's been in a kayak tournament on that last one you were just at? It was the biggest trail series event payout that they've ever had. So it was the one of the largest turnouts in the largest trail series event. Um, I, I wouldn't say it's the biggest payout because their tournament of champions um, pays out pretty well, but definitely for their, their, their normal trail trail that was the biggest payout ever yeah well that's a nice to get <laughs> nice to get a big piece of that pie as one of the bigger yeah. trail series payouts um yeah and so f- did you guys end up staying like in a hotel while you're down there did you camp or what'd you do there yeah so uh i ended up actually teaming up with a uh member of our newly formed Minyak bass fishing league um ryan thompson um, he is interested as well in fishing the Hobie BOS series and him and I got together and actually teamed up and, and, uh, shared a hotel room while we nice. were down there. So, you know, sharing with people is saving on expenses and, you know, throughout this first tournament and throughout my time seeing on the BASS last year, I actually met some of the guys from Missouri and Nebraska and, uh, actually working to network them to get a cabin set up for broken bow and future Hobie events as well to make it even you know easier on the the lodging side no for sure i know they a lot of people do that even on the you know pro boat series too. you know find buddy to be able to get a hotel with when you're doing kind of those multi-day trips and you know three days of pre-fishing two days of tournament fishing um you know having a good night's sleep is is critical too to having good performance so i, I don't blame you for not camping <laughs> oh yeah i think the the thing for me is you know you're usually so worn out at the end of the day pre-fishing that you're going to sleep anyways even if you're sleeping on a rock the thing for me is how do you charge all your equipment <laughs> you got to charge your batteries somehow and that's that's the reasons why i usually end up in a hotel is because you can charge your equipment and for me i get frustrated when i don't have a shower <laughs> so i have to be able to have a shower every morning otherwise there's just something wonky that goes on in my head no i gotta do that before a tournament too i don't care if i gotta get up at 4 30 or 5 to you know uh, get over there in time but I, I like getting my shower in before just to wake up a little bit um yep wake up wake up a little bit and go in feeling fresh 
to the tournament. Exactly. Cool. Um, real quick, too. I know we'll probably wrap this up in a little bit here, but let's quickly go over the kayak uh, that you're using. And, and so tell us kind of what kayak you're in and if there's any, you know, kind of accessories that, that are your go-tos or anything a little different maybe on your kayak versus, you know, standard angler's kayak. Yeah, so I fish out of a 2019 Hobie Pro Angler 12. Um, I prefer the 12 foot over the 14 foot personally, just because of the fact that I feel like I have more maneuverability in a 12 footer versus a 14. Um, you know, I can still carry all the equipment that I need to carry with me and um, still feel very comfortable. I can still stand up in that kayak, um, have no problems fishing it. Um, I just recently as well, it purchased and installed a, um, Minn Kota XI3 trolling motor for the bow um, okay. of that. That's going to be something I roll out this season when, you know, fishing like BASS, the KBF and other tournament trails that allow you to use a motor, um, you know, brings in the whole spot lock game and, uh, you know, help you get to spots a little bit quicker. Ah, so you do have um, spot lock on that, but that's yep, pretty sweet. I do. I've been looking at that I do, and... old town um, that has a built-in Minn Kota and that has a spot lock, yep. but man, I, that spot lock is kind of a game changer for kayak fishing, I feel like. It is. I've seen guys fish out of that old town Sportsman 120, and I can tell you, in my opinion, Hobies are the best kayaks on the market, but that old town sportsman I think is going to be the closest competition wise to the best fishing kayak on the market to a Hobie pro angler. So I think, you know, in the upcoming season, I, you know, old town really came out with a, with a killer product. I've seen guys use that Minn Kota in current situations and be able to sit on a spot where I'm sitting there having to pedal my butt off in the Hobie, you know, so that's part of what, what caused me to buy that Minn Kota XI3. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll see how big of a game changer that is for me. I know it was fun using that pre-fishing for the Hobie event, and I'm really looking forward to using that. Um, I've got my kayak is powered using a um, Yak Power system complete. So um, I've got a Yak Power system with, um, you know, I can power bow-mounted lights. I can power, like, side and interior lights. And then that obviously powers my fish finder as well. Um, I'm running an X, uh, Lawrence, um, nine TI two, um, uh, as for my, okay. so you did go nine and I, I'm, yep. I'm debating moving up a little bit. I got the Garmin, uh, 73 SV, which is a seven inch. And I'm like, man, I, I don't know. I, I might need to go up to a nine inch here soon. Yeah. That nine inch, it makes it really nice. Um, you know, it's not too big. It's not too small. Um, that Elite 9 TI2 that I run has side scan and down scan. So my typical screen when I'm running tournaments is I have side scan running, showing both left and right. I have a down scan mode. So I, if I run over a piece of structure or if I am running over rocks or something, I can see what, what is down there. And then I have a GPS up in the upper right-hand corner. Um, and then uh, I do run a power pole on the back of my kayak just to uh um for those shallow water situations like if in the springtime i always have that thing on because you know if i'm bed fishing or anything i want to be able to just drop my power pole and sit there and pick off a bed um and in tournament situations in the wind 
you probably experienced this as well, or even in the river and current, you know, you, it always seems to happen that you catch a big fish and you're sitting there trying to measure it. And all of a sudden you float onto your spot and that spooks all your fish. And so I usually drop that power pole down so I don't float over my fish and spook the spots. Um, and then, uh, that is about everything that I have technology wise on my kayak. And then, um, I think another game changer for me that I, that I have through Hobie is the, uh, um, Hobie H crate because that Hobie H crate allows me to get four extra rod holders. So inside a Hobie Pro Anger 12, um, at least the one that I have now, which is before the new 360, um, I have four rod holders or four rod tubes inside the kayak. And then having the ability to tab those extra four rods, uh, holders allows me to have up to eight rods ready to go for a tournament situation. And that makes it, that helps me out a ton when you're trying to flip through rods or flip through baits and not have to sit there and retie. Oh no, absolutely. I'm, I've been a big proponent lately of, of having a lot of rods with you. And I usually rock about six rods kind of for my tournaments. Um, are you all the way up to eight or? So no. So I get? usually carry around about six with me because two of my rod holders, one of them's at least for my net. Um, and then one of them is, so I guess I'm running about seven rods now. Um, so one's for a net, the other seven are filled. And, you know, during a tournament, I, and lucky to use two of those rods, <laughs> I guess. Typical <laughs> kayak fisherman carry out seven rods at the end, use two. Yeah, yeah, it, it's nice to have your options in case yep, you need them. But, exactly. Um, no, that's great. And that Brawler is a pretty sweet kayak. I'm rocking the Hobie out back, and I agree with you. I, I think the Hobies are the best on the market um, right now, but we'll see what these other guys do. There's a lot of people and companies kind of up and coming as kayak fishing has grown a lot. Um, but I still have yet to see something kind of along the same lines of quality. Um, I feel like those Hobies, they're just very solid and dense. I don't know if that they run like a little thicker on their plastic or what, but well, I think um, the thing about Hobies is the drive system, right? So the drive system is top notch and the service that you get. So up here in Minnesota, you know, we are local Hobie dealers, high tempo water sports. And I know that high tempo, whenever anything happens to your kayak, you can take it to high tempo and they will get you taken care of. So, you know, having top notch service, having the top quality, everything on your kayak, I think is what makes Hobie a Hobie. And no, absolutely. And the drive is incredible. Um, and that's really a game changer. I mean, when I change from my paddle to, to that pedal Hobie, it's, it's a game changer, but I also think just like the quality of all the other components beyond the drive too, are just, um, you know, far superior than what you get in a lot of other kayaks. Yeah. It, in my opinion, it is, um, you know, the outback that you have is a per, I've actually been looking at, potentially getting one myself because it's a perfect river boat. If you're ever in a situation that you need a paddle for some reason, that is the kayak you need. Like the Hobie pro angler yeah. is great and big water situations when you can use your drive to get everywhere. But when you need to paddle that, that, that outback is the best and it's quicker. So if you're one of those guys who likes to make that whole shot to your spot, right? You're, the outback is going to outrun a PA all day long. 
No, for sure. Um, and I also do some like kayak camping and things like that. And just like hauling it, yep. <laughs> um, me and my buddy hit a river and I mean, we had to go down like a hundred uh, foot staircase to get down to the river. And I'm really glad that I am out back and not pro angling that situation. Cause when you're trying to carry that with a buddy and you're lifting over rocks and stuff, it, uh, it's definitely a little easier. I can still throw it up uh, above my head and walk with it for, you know, short distances when needed. So, um, but yeah, I mean, but when you're on big water, that pro angler, I had a pro angler for a little bit. And I mean, it, I felt like I was fishing off a dock yep. for part of it. Um, I had a power pole on it too. And I put that thing down and man, I feel like I'm fishing off a dock. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah, it is. It really is incredible. And, you know, like you said, Old Town, in my opinion, is next, is, is up and coming. I mean, Old Town has been there for a while. They've been another big staple in the kayak industry. And, you know, that Old Town 120 is going to be a game changer for them. And, you know, I couldn't be on a Minnesota-based contact or, you know, or podcast and not mention, um, you know, the Lightning Kayaks, the guys here in Minnesota, right? They're, they're coming out. They're still kind of new you know, still kind of building a, a reputation for themselves. And, you know, they've got some really good things up and coming as well. Yeah. I'll have to try one of those out here soon too. Um, but cool. No, this is, this has been a great episode here. I love, uh, love all the detail you went into for everything. Um, any sponsors shout outs uh social media pages for people to follow you yeah so uh not technically fully sponsored yet by anybody but you know um want a big shout out to first of all tourney x Dwayne wally and those guys um for doing what they do behind the scenes and these big tournaments especially hobie bos um i know uh the kayak community would not have been buzzing about this event without tourney x so i want to give them a huge shout out um, huge shout out again to high tempo water sports, you know, with me busting my drive, um, took that in there and Jeremy and the crew over there is always great to work with and currently working on getting that fixed up for me. Um, and, uh, then, um, I want to thank pro staff for Omnia fishing, you know, Minnesota, another Minnesota based company offers tons of fishing products actually get pays you back for buying things. So shout out to them. Um, Kitech USA. And uh, also want to mention the up and coming Miniac bass fishing leagues that we just newly formed in the state of Minnesota. Um, it's a, it's a bass fishing league that we started for guys who might not feel confident just yet getting out into the national and pro level scenes. Um, our goal is to try to offer that type of an experience in the state of Minnesota to hopefully help people build that confidence to eventually branch out into the national events, you know, guys like me and, and other anglers who um, traditionally fish the national events are going to be running that and um, also competing. So um, if you're in Minnesota and, and you're looking to get that experience, definitely check us out again. It's the Minnesota kayak bass fishing league or Minyak. You can find us on Facebook and uh, we'd love to have you. Awesome. I'll have to check out that Minyak. Um, yeah, we'll have to discuss that a little bit more later on. But um, no, that's awesome. Great, great shout outs to I've I've worked with Omni as ambassador, great company. And uh, High, High Tempo is who I got my Hobie through. Um, and I actually just sent 
my neighbor over to Jeremy the other day and he just put his money down on a new 2021 Outback. So um, those awesome. are great guys, but great joy. Well, hey, man, we're coming up on an hour here. I appreciate you hopping yep. on. Um, and man, I, again, congratulations on the big second place and cashing that that $4,800 check, man. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate it. And again, thanks for having me on. And and uh, hopefully we'll be able to touch base again again soon. Like I said, I'm really gunning to to try to put Minnesota on the map. And you know, you personally, if you ever want to come down and fish with me in one of these events, just hit me up, and I'd love to fish with you. Sounds good. Thanks, Joe. You have a good one, man. Thank you for tuning in to the Boundless Kayak Fishing Podcast. Enjoy your time on the water.